Dan Morris is a staff reporter for The Washington Post in Montgomery County, Maryland. He covers kidnappings, bomb threats, assaults, and murders. The Philip Welsh case wasn't that unique in his world, a man beaten to death in his own home, except for one thing. I got the murder victim's name from the police, and I did a quick Google search on him, and nothing came up. I mean, this guy's got zero online presence. Dan assumed that if Philip wasn't online, then maybe it meant he didn't have much going on, that he'd been a hermit or a shut-in. But it turns out that couldn't have been further from the truth. He wasn't trying to keep people at arm's length. This is Philip's sister Mary, the oldest of the eight Welsh siblings. She says Philip had no computer at home, no cell phone, no relationship with the Internet. But that didn't keep him from staying in touch. He was as social as any social media addict, maybe more so. He was interested in the relationships, whether they were conducted with pen and ink or a typewriter or a voice or whatever. Sometimes when Philip and I would talk, the conversation would last for two hours, and just when you thought you were getting off the phone, he would think of a whole other tangent to go on. (laughs) And there you'd be another hour later. And here's Josh, the youngest of the Welsh siblings. He wrote letters that were beautiful, long letters that were very funny. Anyone who got them knew it was a delight when you got to open up that letter. And he would write them frequently. So the fact that he wasn't on Facebook or Twitter, it was not something that I missed with him. He wasn't, he was not a Luddite. He wasn't, he wouldn't go on screeds against these things. He just would kind of shake his head and go, nah, I'm not going to bother. He just felt he didn't need it. Even though he lived by himself, he was rarely alone. He was connected, not just to his family, but to just about everyone he met. He was a guy who trusted strangers. I think he went a little too far on that because he would leave the door ajar. This is Joe, Philip's brother, explaining that Philip literally had an open-door policy for his home. In fact, I think if you go on Google Earth, you know, and you put in his address, I don't know if it's changed, but the last time I looked, and it's been probably a couple of years, there's his house, and there's the front door open. If you don't mind me asking, could you tell me his address? I won't put it on the air. I just want to see for myself. Yeah. I'm looking as we as we talk. It looked to me like it was summertime. Everything was green and overgrown. and um, Yeah, it's wide open. The door's open? Well, there you go. Here's Josh again. He would leave his keys in his car, too. That was part of the same thing. And one time he got a call late at night. It was the police asking if he had driven his car into a neighbor's yard by accident. And he was like, he was like no, I'm, my car's out on the street. And they said, you better go check. And he looked outside, and someone had stolen his car and gone joyriding and, and crashed it into somebody else's yard. It's sad, but not exactly surprising, that Philip's radical openness has made tracking down his killer more difficult. Anyone could have walked through his front door. But the police say that actually the bigger problem they're facing comes from Philip's avoidance of the Internet. If you're killed in 2014... Many of the police's first steps happen online. They search your email, your texts, your web history, your cell phone contacts. In Phillip's case, the cops have none of that. Here's Captain Marcus Jones of the Montgomery County Police. It really does mean that we have to kind of change our focus in in, in doing groundwork police investigations in the sense of uh, really interviewing lots of people and gathering a lot of information that way instead of analyzing a lot of data. 
According to Dan Morse, Philip inherited his disinterest in technology from his dad. They were the house on the block without the television, but he would allow the television to come in. Uh, I didn't know this, but you could rent TVs. And uh, dad would rent the TV for election returns and conventions, and all the family would gather around and watch these, you know, events, and then the TV would leave the house again. Philip was always a smart, well-read guy, but he wasn't that great a student. He dropped out of college after his first year and spent some time hitchhiking. And then he fell into the career that he had until the end of his life. This is about 1971, and he sort of bumbles into a cab-driving job where he's hitchhiking, you know, just outside of Washington, and his cab driver picks him up for a company called Barwood. And Philip, of course, strikes up a conversation, as Philip does, and he, you know, asks him about driving a cab, and the guy says, hey, you know, you'll make more money and meet more women than you could ever think of. So for 40 years, Philip worked for the Barwood Cab Company starting as a driver and later as a dispatcher, and the whole time cultivating the behavior he was known for when he died. Smoking, writing poetry on a Smith Corona electric typewriter, listening to records, hanging out with whoever let themselves into his house, keeping in touch with his family through phone calls and snail mail. Here's Josh, who lives across the country in Southern California. He'd always written, I mean, he was was a beautiful writer of prose and poetry, and he started sending me poems that were, when I read them, it was obvious they were written kind of like song lyrics. I mean, and he said, hey, see if you can do anything with these. If not, don't worry about it. But if, if you think these might be workable into songs, let me know. So I started recording stuff, and it just progressed over the years. Philip sent Josh poems. Josh sent Philip demos. Philip sent Josh notes, and then Josh would record the songs with his band, Meat Yard. There's some other life I'd be A better person than I am I'd be more together since the investigation remains open, the police haven't released much information on what happened the night of February 19th. But here's what we know. Philip came home from work. He changed into his pajamas. He started making himself dinner, and then someone walked into his house and beat him to death. He was 65. Were it not for Dan Morris, the murder of Philip Welsh wouldn't have garnered as much attention as it has but the attention hasn't translated into progress on the case. Philip's siblings are now watching the weeks since Philip's murder slip into months. Here's Mary. You know, we would honestly at this point do anything, including standing on our heads in the middle of Connecticut Avenue if, if it would cause the person to be caught. And it's not even that I want to cause suffering or anything, but I just, you want to know who did it and why. Yeah. Because if you can't get past that, I don't know what happens to people. I mean, I pray that I don't find that out. Here's Joe. The only thing I can tell you is um, today they had a, in New York City, they had some sort of memorial for the 9-11 victims. And I was affected very much by watching it. And in the past, I, I knew that it was a tragedy. I knew it was terrible. But I could not understand those people's pain when they would talk about losing a brother or a father. But I can now. And then hearing these people lament, I can relate. And um, I think a lot of those people, uh, everybody wonders, what could I have done differently to have changed history? And I know I'm well enough to know that if you would have said, you know, it's a matter of life and death and you should get, you know, a cell phone and this, that, and, you know, you need to come into the 21st century, he, he would have said, yeah. He wouldn't have explained it. He wouldn't have sat there telling you all day long why he wasn't going to do it. He just would have, uh, he would have smiled and changed the subject. He would have started talking about something else that was more 
enjoyable to talk about. Philip's neighbors have built a memorial in front of his old house. It's a small wooden box on top of a pole, shaped like a house with a shingled roof. And it's full of books. Anyone's allowed to stop by and browse the titles, on the understanding that those who borrow from it will one day replace the books they've taken. So even though his house will eventually be sold, Philip will always have a home on his block, and its doors will remain open. I used to walk in the rain With holes in my shoes Where it's been raining lately Would turn my toes blue I wish I could be walking In the rain with you I wish I could be walking In the rain with you TLDR was produced this week by PJ Vote and me, Alex Goldman. Our executive producer is Kat Rogers. Our engineer is Jen Munson. We had more help from Cameron Lindsay and Ethan Scheel. Special thanks to Adrian Cudlin. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Morse, the reporter we spoke to from the Washington Post, wrote a book called The Yoga Store Murder. You can find it wherever you buy books. And if you have any information about the murder of Philip Welsh, please call the Montgomery County Police at 240-773-5070. We tweet at A. Goldmund, PJ Vote, and TLDR. And we are TLDR. And cherubs beating drums go to the two I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.